Welcome to What Can We Do In These Powerful Times? I'm your host, David Bent, and I've been working in the field of sustainability and climate change for some 20 years. It feels like the need for change is growing faster than the impact we're delivering. So I'm wondering what can I do next that is useful? When I speak to others, they have the same challenge, which is why I'm doing this interview series. In 30 minute bites, I ask some brilliant people what they're doing now and why. All to inspire and enable the audience, which may just turn out to be me, through stories grounded in experience. Today's guest is Denise Young. Denise is a writer and podcast host specialised in green finance and sustainability uh, with a newsletter called The Zeroist. Hello, Denise. Hello, David. So what are you doing now and how did you get here? Um, Well, um, I have a podcast that I publish uh, on green finance and uh, sustainability and um, I also write freelance Um, I do a bit of communications consulting where I came from was I was a journalist to start out with Uh, I worked in Asia um, in the 90s uh, when it was all about and I covered um, economics and finance for Reuters back Mm. then uh, when uh, the world was talking about Asian tigers I worked in Hong Kong in Japan in Thailand uh, gosh, it feels like such a different world today mm. from back then. Um, and then I uh, got into the field of doing climate communications. Uh, so I worked at an organization called the International Council for Science, and we did a lot of work on uh, advocating for science at the UN and things like that. And since 2018, I've been uh, working for myself. So, mm-hmm. And w- what is the future you're trying to create and why? You know, um, I I feel that one of the main um, shocks, if you will, at the sort of the macro and the micro level of the pandemic has been to uh, force open that question quite brutally Mm. and make it harder than ever to separate, you know, the professional from the personal. Mm. Uh, And so um, I think what I realised is that we can't really do big things until we've worked on the small things ourselves. And so if we're feeling despair, um, tired, um, pessimistic, then we actually can't do anything. So uh, right now I'd say that um, the big work is actually the small work. Mm -hmm. And do you have like um, a direction of that big work? Do you have a a vision of the future? So... What what is the nature of that big of the small work, and what does it tell us about the big work? Sort of mean. So I mean, I think the big work. You know, if we go back to twenty fifteen and the Paris Agreement, which mm. was a very exciting moment, and a moment where I was very engaged, kind of institutionally and professionally, with a lot of different networks, climate action and climate policy, climate science. Um, the I think what's changed since then for me uh, at the the sort of the higher level is that it was very easy to believe that we could do everything through Mm. science and technology. Mm. And um, I think, again, since the pandemic, it's kind of become obvious that um, the social piece uh, is the social human dimension is just um, somehow until we address that, until we address issues of equity, justice, and so on, Mm. uh, 
we won't do all of the things that we were so excited about and that seem to be unfolding in front of us, such as, um, you know, the scaling of renewable energy everywhere and you know, decarbonization and all the pathways and so on. So um, I feel very humbled mm. um, in the face of people who are doing really important work trying to change the way we think about these things from a social human point of view. And with the pandemic, on one level, it's a triumph of science. Um, within a year, we have a vaccine, or vaccines, plural, which, as far as anyone can tell, are, are safe. They make um, people um, relatively immune or very immune, or if they do get the disease, as I have, I've had COVID, um, don't suffer it in very strong ways. So on one level, it's been a, a triumph of science, but on another level, not because there is a huge amount of distrust of the of the um of the messages and then there's also a huge amount of inequality in the distribution of the vaccines is that what you mean about um how the pandemic has uh sort of broken open your the assumptions you had going into it and coming out of the paris agreement from 2015 um in in one way yes in another way it's um Actually, I'm more referring to things like, you know, the, the yellow vests in 2018. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the, the increasing awareness we have now that um, the renewable energy revolution is going to drive more mining and, mm. you know, more extraction and more human rights abuses in all of the countries where people are most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. it, it's more, so, so it's almost, um, this is where I get super depressed uh, and, you know, need to yeah. work on myself is that you feel like you've, you do everything possible to look around you and, and look for sources of sort of hope and uh, progress in the right direction. And, and then it's, it's two steps back. You know, mm. you, uh, so that. Yeah. And, and you're speaking from Paris where of course the, uh, the Illevests had their various different protests. Oh. Um, I'm trying to remember, I remember one French friend of mine talking about how they, um, yes, it was a, carbon tax which was the trigger for their protests but underneath that was a sense of it's the young it's the um the little guy who is getting taxed whilst the rich are having their tax reduced so it wasn't it, it sometimes in the uk it's presented as an uh, a reason to not act on climate change actually it was much more to do with a lack of political voice and a seeming i feel that the elites were on the side of the rich only and that the only way to get through to them was to have a riot, basically. Um, yes, I agree with all of that. I mean, um, you know, um, the Yellow Vests used to gather at checkpoints, mm. right, and and um, all over the all over the country, and they would. Um, have these fires and mm. oil drums. Uh, um, and I think one of the journalists I spoke to about this said, but, you know, all they were talking about was purchasing power and their role models were these, you know, rich people mm. who are in this cycle of hyperconsumption that's uh, really not doing anything to help us address the climate change problem. So, um, yes. 
Well, and also the it, 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 everything seems to me now like a vicious circle. You know? Yeah, there are these, these loops that just cannot be broken. <laughs> well, and also with that hyperconsumption, a huge part of that hyperconsumption is about status goods, about demonstrating your yeah. importance and that you have lots of spending power, and therefore, by definition, only a small number of people can have them. Otherwise, they are uh, don't convey the same status and don't have the same value. So, oh. it's not possible if your mot- if the uh, underlying psyche you're trying to um, engender across your society, if that is about um, wanting high consumption, hyperconsumption, it's not possible for that to drive equality, sort of by definition. Oh. And so those, uh, it's completely understandable why the Miejean would want to um, achieve that high status and have the sense of having a place in the world and having a voice. Uh, which I imagine they also associated with those who can make that spending. But unfortunately, the, their means of doing that, the the thing they were dreaming of was not possible in their dream, even. is It's one mm. of those great ironies. And as you say, mm. a circle back on itself. Yeah. Um, and what's implied in everything you're saying is the future you're trying to create is one where there is equality and where we are, in some sense, um, have some degree of safety around climate i mean i think the ipcc report which came out very recently means that we're not we're not going to be able to go back to a stable and safe climate world but we can try to make for a world which is less dangerous than we feared before the paris agreement was signed yeah so the ipcc report is really interesting um uh, i was kind of puzzling about that because um you know it was the second working group which is about adaptation impacts mm. and vulnerability and as a communicator um, the, the you know I've I've always had the observation and sort of been more involved in working group one. The physical science always comes up first; it gets all the headlines. Um, the second one is always a little bit trickier mm-hmm. uh, to communicate, and I think um, there's plenty of media coverage of it. But if you try to grapple with what the key messages are, they're actually quite abstract and quite difficult to communicate. You know, they are all about interconnections and, um, you know, climate resilient development, which is in itself is a sort of quite an abstract term. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, They talk about global hotspots of vulnerability and, you know, there's a lot of north-south narrative in there. And um, it just reminds me once again that our whole world, our systems of information and media and, and, and our governance structures are designed to make it really hard for those messages to um, kind of break through, land, take root and become, you know, whatever, yeah. different types of change. Yes. Uh, and that could be either deliberate or just a consequence of, of their the path dependency, how they came into being um, as well. And I, and I think that second report... I mean, there's, it calls for a greater need on adaptation. The more, So we're not put more money into adaptation, not just mitigation as well. And I think the other thing, what part of the coverage I've seen on that is how the worst, the, the, the worst temperature ranges that are being talked about are lower than they were 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, it was about four to five degrees is the worst range. Now we're talking about three and a half degrees. Three and a half degrees is still terrible. But it is less terrible than four to five, and so there's uh, the. It's hard to, and this is part of your point earlier. It's hard to talk about progress when it's progress to less fiery circles of hell, rather than 
actually attaining um, better forms of utopia. I think we've been used to progress being an inevitable series of steps towards ever better rather than uh, a um, rather ragged walk away from the worst that was possible. Which is what we've I, got. Yeah, like one of the so the the press conference is always interesting because mm. you can follow the big lines that are being presented by the co-chairs. And one of the things that Deborah Roberts said, um, which really struck me, was I think she said something like adaptation strategies will have to be constantly revised. Yeah. And this was one of the scariest things I heard from the whole thing uh, because already we learned from you know the summary for policymakers that. There's not a ton of good adaptation going on in the world right now. So if we have to go from that to a sort of a real-time agile policy-making process to constantly adapt, gosh. Yes, and I think that's one of the ways in which the necessary, well, one could, I, I would argue that the the changes we need to see over the next decade, decades, are... Um, unique compared to past changes. So they're global in extent. They're faster. Previous industrial revolutions have taken many decades to roll out. Um, they need to. There's a sort of landing zone which we need to be aiming for. Whereas previous revolutions, uh, industrial and political, were sort of off in a particular direction, but nobody knew what would happen next. And then the final component is they're ongoing. So in previous revolutions, we sort of it has been a transition from A to B, and we still talk about just transition, but there's no permanent or there's no sort of plateau of stability uh, based on the latest available science. There'll be uh, for decades, perhaps hundreds of years to come, uh, consequences in the natural world which will not settle down, and therefore the human society which has has to be constantly readapting to them. And that is, as you say, not something which we have any experience of doing on very nearly any scale. Uh, perhaps a few. Yeah, and I mean, cities, if you look at like at the on. national level, how national governments have made policy in response to the pandemic, there is always this time lag. Mm-hmm. You know, the data will say X, and they'll roll out something which is based on you know something from the past, and by the time they announce it, it's often already out of date and yeah. really not appropriate. Yes, I mean, with the pandemic, it showed that. If exp- if you're if something's exponential on a two day doubling period, then delaying action for two days makes things twice as worse. <laughs> Literally, is what happens. Let's move on to the next question. So you talked about how you're currently um, you have a your newsletter, you have your podcast, you have your work in communications. What are your priorities for the next few years? Again, I think. Um... I have been sort of uh, kind of profoundly changed by the pandemic in that I used to love um, thinking about those kinds of questions and, you know, coming up with answers to them and and trying to think in a strategic way. Um, And now, as you said that question, like this, um, you know, saying comes into my head, which I'm trying to remember exactly. I don't remember who said it, but um, um, it's some Chinese sage. Mm. Right. And it's something like, um, you know, governing the world with the same care as you would cook a very, very small fish. 
And so um, uh, I remember once I was in Japan and, and we went to one of these, uh, I, it's, it's some kind of ryoken in, in, in the countryside. Uh, and as you arrived there, they had this open fire where they were grilling tiny fish, mm-hmm. you know, really, really like fish the size of a finger. Um, and so that's, I keep coming back to that. Um, how can we live in a way that we bring that intention to everything we do, whether it's big or small, uh, short-term or long-term, and how might that change um, the outcomes? You know, by changing the process, you change the outcome. It's that mm. idea. Mm. And the change in the process you're talking about there is one of care and very specific attention to the particular need in that particular moment. That's right, yeah. People um, listening to each other more, um, mm-hmm. not being in such a hurry, uh, you know, not kind of filling up life with lots of tasks and to-do lists and making that the, a proxy for life itself. Yeah. <clears throat> I say yes as somebody who's written out his to-do list for today and knowing that that to-do list is too long for the, th- the amount of time I have for things today. I but... mean, my to-do list from this morning <laughs> is already completely out of date. <laughs> yes, I very nearly finished my to-do list from last week. Um, and <laughs> so... Um, but I think there's a way in which what you're just saying there about the... It's, it's about care. I care. think my message is about care. If we care for ourselves, we can care for each other. If we care for each other, then we can care for uh, the things that are around us that we want to leave for future generations. And also caring intently to the situation in the moment mm-hmm. uh, and, and the listening, as you were saying. And in a strange way, that's the flip side of the... or potentially is a flip side and a, and a way of addressing... The thing that you found most um, disturbing about that press conference, which is the, this ongoing nature of adaptation. So in order to be adapting in an ongoing way, you need to be paying attention in an ongoing way and being, able, right. and being able to respond and having the agility to respond, which means not being full of existing tasks, which you're completely committed to. Yeah. Because if you have to do all of them, then you've got no space for anything new mm. or different. Um, so... And how does the how does the 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 newsletter and the the podcast how do those fit with that care and attention in the moment? Or, or do you have particular things you're hoping that so they're going po- to do? Podcasting is very interesting because um, I came from text journalism, so mm. I didn't have um, you know an audio background, mm. and um, the voice is you know a, a very intimate instrument, mm. uh, and um, in order to use your voice to create empathy you have to be good at listening and so Mm. that in itself the process of producing a podcast listening to one's own voice uh you know uh, designing questions Mm. that can lead to a conversation that will actually um provide value to other people um um, i don't know if i answered your question what was the question what is about what you're hoping to do with the uh, so you've got this the care and the attention and then you have your current vehicles for that, which is the newsletter and the podcast. And I wondered if you had any desires or goals for them or how those yeah, two Yeah, so as a, as a kind of a communicator, someone who does that for a living, um, 
I hear a lot of people around me getting super depressed by things mm. like IPCC reports and, um, oh, you know, green finance is just nonsense. It's just all greenwash and yeah. um, the lobbyists are hard at work. And so um, all of that is well and good, but um, we mustn't give up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I do these activities independently. I kind of make a living doing other things. Mm. Um, and they're great platforms for learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and having a newsletter means that you are in service to a community of subscribers. And so it's your job to listen to, you know, what things they find interested in, what they are coming to you to find out about that they're mm. not finding in other forms of media. Yeah. Um it's really about that. It's yeah. It, I, newsletter writing is, is something very specific these days. People, you know, they they make money from it. They charge subscriptions. Mm. Um, they're supposed to have hot takes. Uh, it's very um, editorialized. It's mm. it's a lot of the it's former news journalists who just uh, ramp up their opinions in and and then that people read them and so without having to read a lot of information, you get to absorb something that makes you feel smarter and allows you to sound smarter. Um, And so that's the, that's the world that the newsletter thing operates in right now. And so one can't, I can't turn away from that. You know, I have to conform to certain aspects of that. Um, But, you know, I try my best to understand uh, what people are clicking on and what they might find interesting and how I can help them, you know, get things pieces of information and points of view that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Yeah. I mean, it's, it strikes me that there's a, with that dominant mode, um, that there's a sort of risk associated with it of people being able to sound smarter within their own bubble, that they don't actually have to um, pay attention to the, the what's really going on. All they need, they need to pay attention to those writers and thinkers who they like and who are part of their bubble are saying and then they can sound smarter without necessarily having thought about it themselves so there's um uh, it's yes which stands in some contrast to that notion of care and attention that you were giving before Mm -hmm. so there's perhaps a service to your audience about helping them feel smarter but not because they've absorbed an opinion but because they are paying more attention and they can have more Mm -hmm. care so there's there is always that um if someone was inspired to follow your priorities around care and uh, so on and communicating, what should they do next? Um, so I do, I'm going to come back to the pandemic. During mm. the pandemic, um, I, like many other people in the world, felt pain about mm. what was going on in the world and what was happening to my own life. And mm. At times I felt that I just couldn't cope with it. You know, it was just impossible mm. to do anything or feel that you were connected to anything. Um, and so uh, what has been super helpful for me is almost um, anything that is, I don't really understand the humanistic, mm-hmm. like um, whether it's just uh, subtracting myself from the everyday holy burly of the new cycle and mm. the books um, that the FT tells you to read and, you know, things like that, yeah. right? Um, just removing yourself from those and just going to some other place, wherever your personal energy and your kind of your own history and story, where you mm. come from, your cultural identity, whatever those things 
say to you, um, going to find things. And I found that in the process, um, after a while, doing that takes you into a space where everything connects up again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, I'm half Chinese. Uh, I got very interested in a whole bunch of things, um, watching Chinese movies, uh, taking formal Chinese class again, going to Tai Chi class, um, mm-hmm. uh, going to exhibitions in Paris around that, watching movies, Kung Fu movies, martial arts movies, all types of things like that. And suddenly, probably in the Tai Chi class, which is very much meditation in motion, mm. um, you just feel some click, how everything seems to all click together. And... Um, I'm not saying that we can solve any global problem with that kind of process, but if your personal inner space is mm. more convergent and connected, then you are building your own resilience to then go out into the world and you know respond to all the news that's coming in at us on the suffering in Ukraine and mm. the sadness and the tragedy and the, just the, the disbelief-inducing news cycle. Yes. That's lovely. Um, yes, very nice. Um, next question. If your younger self was starting their career now, what advice would you give them? Don't compete. Don't compete with what? With other your people? Your peers. Right. With, um, don't, yes, your peers, uh, 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 role models in the media, um yeah and why do you say that because it crowds out so much good stuff and blinds you to what's actually there in front of you mm-hmm. great people people essentially um are wired to help and support each other and it's very easy to lose sight of that within the dynamics of organizations and groups and formal networks great thank you um who else would you nominate to have these questions who should i talk to can you give me a prompt around um well anybody who inspires you really or who you think they're doing great work you admire their approach so there's um there's a Senegalese French guy who won the Prix Concours. Right. Um, I, can't, I, I don't remember his name, but he, he wrote this novel and um, that is apparently very beautifully written. My French is not good enough. I tried. Uh, but I saw him interviewed on uh, French television and, um, gosh, he said something so wonderful. He said um, in, in the current day and age of polarization and people not listening to each other um, perhaps fiction has a better chance of helping people to empathize with the other's point of view Mm. i thought he was just wonderful so him or anybody else like him (laughs) (laughs) would be would be great i'll search about my my french my gcse french may be a little bit rusty uh 30 years on but we'll see what we could do um and is there anything else important that you would like to say No, thank you for hosting this conversation. It really made me, um, you know, dig deep and and, uh, and and I'm grateful. Well, my pleasure. So um, 
Thank you very much to Denise. You've been listening to uh, What Can We Do In These Powerful Times With Me, David Bent. Um, and I look forward to uh, being able to share more with you in this near future. Thank you. Bye.